The following audio is from a sermon series entitled The Revelation of Jesus Christ. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Revelation chapter 4. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne, and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, life can be kind of disorienting, right? It's just hard. Things get thrown at you. You don't know how to respond. Things go crazy. It reminds me of this, uh, this quote that Mike Tyson has. He says, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And when you think about it in the context of boxing, right? Boxing isn't just two dudes getting in a ring and slugging each other. It's, it's a sport that involves a lot of strategy, a lot of planning, studying your opponent, putting, put, laying a game plan out there so when you step into the ring, you know how to execute. And I think the same can be tr- true of life. We, we set out a plan. We, ha- we have this idea of what, what's supposed to go, and then all of a sudden, something comes on, pops us right in the teeth. Things get derailed, and this happens at every stage of life. Right? If, if, you're, if you're in your 80s, you can think back of how that's happened in your 20s, your 30s, 40s, all the way through. And maybe you're in, in your 20s and you're discovering how this goes, 30s and discovering how this goes. 
We never outgrow this. Life keeps swinging at us. And sometimes the punches come at an increasing velocity. And sometimes it's a single jab that just sort of knocks us off, right? Maybe things are cruising along, things are going well, and just a single jab just knocks us back. And other times, it seems like we find ourselves in a flurry of punches. They just never stop coming. Now, it might seem like the opponent uh, is masked in a variety of things. It, it, it could be conflict at work. It could be uh, challenges that we face in marriage, money, difficult children, uh, difficult family dynamics. Maybe you got to step into that at Thanksgiving this past week. Uh, a, per, a perpetual sense of discontentment and angst, your, your annoying neighbors, all of these things can, can generate this sense of, dis, disorient, uh, of being disoriented. There's this inner calamity fueled by a sense of, of not measuring up and maybe even health problems and on and on and on. There's no shortage of, of things that could be coming at you, stirring up the dust of chaos, nagging at you to keep your hands up to protect your face. Now, the modern gurus, they aren't silent about this. There are shelves and shelves of books in Barnes and Noble that prescribe suggestions about how to deal with this in the realm of self-help. There might be some helpful tips in there, but unfortunately, none of these self-help books are able to get to the nucleus, to the core of the problem. Self-help is the medical equivalent of putting a Band-Aid on a broken bone and expecting it to be healed. It just doesn't work that way. You might get a new mindset or a few life hacks, but they're just not enough to calm the raging storm, the, the rushing wind and the waters that come at you in life. Self-help, it's like a, a pop-up tent in the midst of a pounding storm. Now, the context in which we read our passage from today, the context that John is writing at, uh, writing to the people in Asia, is a very tumultuous time. Um, things aren't necessarily going well for them. The, the government is after them. John himself is imprisoned because of his faith and his devotion to the gospel and proclaiming uh, the good news of salvation for all who believe. And so there's a sense where the suggestion of self-help in times like this would be completely insulting. I mean, John's in prison. He's labeled falsely as a criminal. If, if our life is chaotic, just think of how much more that time was for John and followers of Jesus. They lacked government protection. They didn't have the benefits of, of modern medicine and sociology to give them a, an idea of what's going on in life. It's a time of instability. And even though time has progressed and we've seen advances in some of these areas, there's still very much a time where we find ourselves in, in an unstable time. There's still a lot of chaos that surrounds us. What they needed, what we need is something that gets to the core of who we are, something that centers us, something that stabilizes us no matter what comes our way. This isn't some auxiliary work that you can do in your spare time or maybe, maybe for a couple months in your 20s you give thought to this. this. This core work is foundational, that's centering work. It's a lifelong work that comes as our lives are reshaped. 
Now, the book of Revelation provides for us a mold which our lives ought to be reshaped around, to recast. It goes to the core of our problems, the heart of the matter. And it's interesting that, that as we give ourselves to the book of Revelation, we receive a new sort of liturgy that shapes us. In fact, that's what we do every Sunday morning when we gather for song and liturgy. We're being shaped by the glorious truths of the gospel. But this new liturgy isn't just a new thing. This is something that's ancient, that's eternal. It centers us on what is most true, what's most beautiful, and what's most good. The irony here, though, is when we open up the book of Revelation, especially here in chapter four and five, we're gonna start seeing a lot of really disorienting stuff. There's a lot of strange things that this book tells us about. And whether it's the first time or the thousandth time that you've read this book, there's gonna be some stuff that doesn't quite make sense. And a lot of times we're gonna walk away with more questions than we have answers. Now, this is due to the fact that when John is describing what he sees in Revelation, he is at the end of the leash of human language. He, he, he's seeing something that's completely otherworldly, something that, that can't really make sense within the finite confines of in, the English or Hebrew or Aramaic language, whichever language it comes to us. It, it, we're, we're bound and limited by it. And this is evident right away in verse one because he tells us something strange is happening. He says, after this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. He, this is basically a portal to, between the natural world and the spiritual world. He's seeing something that's beyond the creation. I see a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. This is some sci-fi stuff here. John is on the verge of a new dimension, right? something that our natural bodies, our natural minds don't necessarily uh, uh, come to the conclusion of on our own. He's saying that there's something out there beyond what's in front of us. This is, I think of this kind of like in terms of uh, stranger things, the upside down. Right, those, those boys, if you've seen that show on Netflix, those boys are living life in the 80s, but there's this sort of alternate parallel universe that's going on on the upside down where things are similar, uh, but very different. There's, there's a spiritual, there's, a, there's some sort of threatening spiritual realm that's going on. It's the same sort of thing here, except for, for John stepping in to this parallel realm and it's the throne room of God. Now in Genesis 28, I'm going back to the opposite end of the Bible. Jacob has a vision of this portal. Maybe you remember this. Jacob's out in the wilderness and he sees, and you know it as Jacob's ladder where, where he's had a dream and these angels are ascending and descending from like a stairway that leads up to heaven. He has this epiphany after this dream. He says, surely the Lord is in this place and I didn't know it. And then he, he responds, I'm afraid. He's, he has awe, he says, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Now with, with Jacob's dream, this was not a, a portal he could pass through. Right? He, he couldn't go with the angels and go up and down like, like they were going. He just saw it. Now here John, he gets the opportunity to step in to the heavenly realm. But like Jacob, 
our tendency is to be clueless about the spiritual realm. Our, our tendency, is, even though we're standing on the brink of glory, it's only a portal. It's, it's not that some far, far away distant land. This is, this is just a, a different alternate dimension, if you will, that John gets to step into. And we can stand on the brink of glory and be completely unaware of God's presence. We stand in checkout lines and coffee shops, we're at work meetings and play dates, and we're completely unaware that God is right there. I think that this is even our tendency on Sunday mornings. We come into the house of the Lord Right, We're intentionally stepping into a house of, of worship, yet we can forget that God is here with us right now. The, the 10 of us that are here right now, God is here with us. The hymns, the prayers, they can drone on without thought, with being aware of God here. We can lose our sense of awe. Things become mechanical and dry. And honestly, that's, that's the first sign of a dying church. When we look back at the seven churches that, that John is speaking to, the first thing that, that he says with Ephesus is you lost your first love, that you're unaware that I'm here because here's the reality. When a church is unaware of God's presence, it isn't a church at all. It's not. At best, it's, it's a hopeless optimist club. Right? Because if God's not here, what, where's our hope? Like we can be happy and we can be thoughtful and think about but But if God's not here, we have no hope. See, Moses knew this. When Moses stood on the, the edge of the promised land, when he's, he's getting ready to lead his people uh, into this promised land that God had promised, that he left Egypt, they, they had a time of sla- 400 years of slavery and living oppressed li- lives, and, and they're just hoping that someday something's gonna change, and God's saying, hey, there's this land for you, and, and Moses says, I don't want to go to that land unless your presence comes along with us. It's God's presence that makes his people distinct. Now, when we gather together on Sunday mornings, we, we want to be biblical Christians. We want to worship with the conviction that God is here in our midst. And honestly, there are gonna be people who step in this and we see this, right? If, if you have true faith, you can see that this is the reality, that God is here. But for an outsider, for maybe a, a not yet believer, they don't see this. They see a bunch of weirdos raising their hands to unpopular music. They hear somebody read uh, a confusing passage from an archaic book and some, some bozo stands up and talks about it for a while. We come to a, a, a table to receive what we call a, a spiritual meal, which is a little, little nugget of bread and wine and somehow that's supposed to sustain us throughout the week. Like this doesn't make sense. And if this is all that worship is, then it's just a, a a hyper-spiritual attempt at arm-raising, trying to get God's attention. But Christians, we see that there's more to it. There's more to it than what we do here on Sunday morning. There's a, a spiritual aspect of what we're doing that's profoundly hidden and unseen. 
a reality where God is undeniably in attendance, where he's calling and wooing and redeeming and restoring and blessing his people. See, something significant has happened. When, when, when our voices are lifted in song, our, our voices are united to the heavenly chorus. It, it, it penetrates the spiritual realm and reverberates in the hallways of heaven. And in verse two, John gets a picture of this. He sees where the praise of God reverberates. Verse two says that all at once he's in the spirit. Now meaning he's entering the spiritual dimension here. He has this spiritual awareness that can only come through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what's happening. The spirit is resting upon him in a way that gives him a vision. And it places him right in the middle of God's throne room. And what he says, he sees one seated on the throne. Now, make no mistake about this. This is God, the Lord Almighty, the Father of all creation. Now, as John describes what he's seen, it's very apparent that he's at the end of the leash of human language. What he's saying is, is wildly insufficient, it's a problem like uh, that authors like Tolkien and David Foster Wallace have tried to rectify by inventing their own words to communicate the true meaning of something. But John, he doesn't make up words. He, he, he makes an attempt to communicate what he sees through a series of similes between the heavenly realm and the natural realm in, in language that we can comprehend at least to some extent. Take a look at verse three. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Now, this might kind of seem strange that John, in trying to describe what, what he's seen, the, the glory of God, he equates God's appearance to some gemstones that kids collect on family vacations, right? You know what I'm talking about? Like you pay $10 and they give you a bag of rocks and sand and you got to sift it out and, and you got these kind of rocks that are really not that spectacular. But there's something about these rocks that is actually spectacular. These rocks have the ability, they, they contain certain colors of vividness that, that you don't necessarily see in everyday places uh, in life. Some people might look at this and mis- this, m- misinterpret this as John saying that there's some sort of spiritual value to these rocks, like some, some of the mystics have suggested, but that's not the case. See, what John is telling us, he's saying that in the ancient world, stones were valued for their ability to reveal and to intensify the colors of light. And when you think about it, the way that light and the eyes work, I'm not an expert at this, but the thing, things themselves are colorless. What gives them color is the way that light hits it and it reflects that color. So, so this carpet is not actually this interesting color of turquoise. It's the light that bounces off of it that gives it the appearance of turquoise. See, what's happening here 
is an intensified source of light. In, in his first epistle, John tells us that God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. See, light contains all of the colors. And what he's saying here is that as God's light hits these things, it produces the appearance of these specific gems, pro providing a vivid and brilliant color. Now, what, he, what John is saying is that there's a certain kind of glory, a peculiar glory that shines from God, that his, his glory blazes. His mercy is colorful. In fact, that's what he's talking about when he sees the thing like a rainbow that's like an emerald. That the, I've only seen emerald in the color green, right? But here he's saying that there's a rainbow. There's a spectrum of glory here. Now, every week, I have the impossible task of trying to communicate the scope of this glory. And I found that it's a lot like doing laundry, Right? No matter how much you do, it's never a finished job. No matter how grandiose my adjectives are, no matter how passionate I get, there's always more to say. Now, rather than exhausting himself, John gives us sort of a, an image, something for our, our, the eyes of our heart to set themselves on and makes an, an impression that attracts the eyes of our heart. He says it's something familiar, like a rock. Okay, we, we have a category for rocks. He says it's not just a rock. There's something vivid. There's something um, beautiful about it. It's like a colorful rock. But then he goes on to explain the, the extraordinary nature of this. This is a category-defying rock, an emerald that represents a rainbow. And verse 5 tells us that in this beauty of light, there's, there's flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. And when, when we think of this, whenever we hear this, even in our, in our psalm, the call to worship that was read today, what that should invoke is this, this thought of the exodus. When God is with his people and, and they build a tabernacle and God comes down and there's lightning and thunder and it's just everybody is shook with awe. This brilliance, this imagery is meant to wake us up to the beauty of God and to see him seated on his throne. Such a vision serves as a spiritual bug lamp, one that we are drawn to, one we gravitate toward. But instead of being zapped to death, it's a vision that zaps us to life. See, we are most alive when we were in God's presence. Now, this had to be an electrifying experience for John. And we, in fact, we actually saw him once already where he just fell over dead. He didn't even know what to do with himself. He's probably, just think of this, in the setting of, of his day, because we're told at the beginning of this book, he, he's in the, on the Lord's day and he's worshiping, he's having this private time of prayer. And you would think that he's anticipating this sort of normal, run-of-the-mill, quiet time, prayer time. He's in the Bible, he's reading He's looking for his daily bread, whatever the Lord would give him to nourish him as he rots away in jail. But then, boom, Jesus shows up. Shows up, and does he ever show up? And what happens, John is brought before the throne. Now, just think. Just think if John would have said, you know what? I think I'm gonna skip my prayer time today. I think I'm just gonna, you know, I prayed yesterday, 
I'll probably pray tomorrow. I'm just going to bypass this. He would have missed out. Now, just think of that. Every time that we bypass our, our prayer time, our Bible t- uh, study time, there's a chance that you are missing out on a really unique experience of meeting with Jesus. And I'm, I'm probably going to tell you that it's not going to be like what John experienced, but it could be something just as worship-provoking. And as John stands there and he's looking and his eyes are locked on God on his throne, he sees worshipers gathered around the throne. That's what God does. He gathers his creation around him. Take a look at verse four. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Now, most likely, these 24 elders represent the 12 tribes of the Old Testament uh, and the 12 disciples of the New Testament. What most scholars say is that this is representation of God's people throughout all space and time. These are representatives of those who have endured to the end, who have received the promises that were offered in chapters 2 and 3, that they've been given these white garments that are without stain. They've received these golden crowns and are reigning with God. But explanations get even tougher as we move into the next set of creatures that we see around the throne. Take a look at verse 6. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And all around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind And the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. Now it turns out that God is a pet person. These are the pets of the heavenly realm. But what kind of creatures are these exactly? Well, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> uh, again, John finds himself at the limits of human language. He describes them as creatures like a lion, like an ox, like a man, like an eagle. Except for they have six wings and they're covered with eyeballs, right? Uh, that's... A little bit of a distinction there. You're not going to find anything like that at a pet store here in the Quad Cities. It's hard to find an explanation of what these actually are. Some sort of angelic creatures. But what's more important is seeing what their function is. These are cosmic worship leaders here. Look at at verse eight. You see these creatures and, and, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within and day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. 
See, make no mistake about this. These creatures are here in the throne room giving God worship and praise. And they're always on repeat. And their worship sparks a chain reaction of even more worshiping in the throne room. Keep going on on verse 9. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, O our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. Do you realize where John has brought us? John is at the center of the universe. He's at the origin of all life and of all creation. The place where all things are held together. The heart of all substance. The place of ultimate importance and ultimate reality. That it's God enthroned receiving worship from all his creation. Tim Keller says, The essence of ultimate reality is worship. When you get to the core of the universe, what you see is Worship. See, that's the Bible's answer for every complex question that's related to what is the meaning of life? What's the purpose of life? What are we doing here? See, John says, here it is. It's worship. The axis mundi, the very thing on which the whole universe turns on. See, these elders, the creatures, are are gathered and continually worship the God of the past, present, and future, the God who is, who was, and who is to come. And because this God has eternal dominion, his praise is always relevant. There's never a time that is inappropriate to worship God. And John wants us to see this because here he tells us, God is seated on the throne forever and ever. He he repeats that saying twice, forever and ever. And so as the four creatures declare their worship, say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the elders explain why we worship. Because he's worthy. You know, the the English word worthy comes from uh, from, uh, an old English word, worthyship. Right, when we gather for wor- worship on Sunday mornings, I'm going to get my tongue tied here. When we gather for worship on Sunday mornings, what we're saying is God is worthy of all of my praise, of all of my affection, of all of my being, my head, my heart, my soul, my strength. See, the elders explain he's worthy because he is their creator God. They sit there probably stand there, I don't know. They stand there, they're singing, they're saying, they're broadcasting God's worth. They're throwing down their crowns. You know what that is? That's a sign of surrender. 
They're, they're giving over everything that they have, every accolade, every little bit of control. They're yielding to God and saying, you are worthy of all glory and all honor and all power. See, at the heart of worship, it's a surrender. It's a surrender of control. You always lose control to the thing you worship. Always. It doesn't matter what you worship. Because you're saying to that thing, that person, you're saying, my life is yours. Do, what you, do with me what you will. And everything and everyone worships. That's why mountains cause us awe. We stand at, at the Grand Canyon. You're in the Rocky Mountains. You, you look out and you're just filled with awe. That's why sunsets are so breathtaking. They're yielding to God. They're worshiping. And Psalm 19 tells us, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. They're like the precious rocks that John saw. They're re reflecting the light in a peculiar way. They're doing what they were created to do. That's what worship is. It's saying, I, I realize that there's light coming from me. That, that there's a, a light that's bouncing off of me. But worship is saying, this is the source in which it comes from. It's not coming from me, it's coming from something else. And humans are meant to do the same, to reflect this. Everybody was made to worship. Everybody was made to be a God reflector. So let me ask you, when someone looks at you, I mean really looks at you, do they catch a glimpse of God's light? Does the beauty of your character catch their eye? Does your kindness and compassion point back to the throne? In fact, that emerald that looks like a, a rainbow, what, what that's representing, anytime there's a rainbow in, in the New Testament, Old Testament, and Scripture in general, what that's pointing to is God's compassion and mercy going all the way back to the flood when he promised, I'm not gonna flood the earth ever again. When people look at you, do they, do they catch a glimpse of God's light? See, in this way, we can see how worship is way more than what we do here on Sunday mornings. Worship is a way of life. Now, maybe you don't buy this everyone worships stuff, right? You might, you might be thinking, well, worship is for Christians or people who, are, uh, who have faith. You know, maybe you want to say, I'm spiritual, but I don't necessarily worship. And that's fine, but, but it's inconsistent, David Foster Wallace, usually I quote Christians here on Sunday mornings, but every once in a while I like to shake it up. David Foster Wallace is maybe one of the best uh, authors of our time. Literally a genius. And, and he gave a, a commencement address um, a while back, um, and in, it's, just, it's a fascinating uh, speech. But, but in this speech, he, he says to these graduates, he says, there's no such thing as not worshiping. This is a man who's not a man of faith. He says, there's no such thing as not worshiping. Everyone worships. He actually suggests that there's actually no such thing as a real atheist, right? Now, somebody might suggest that there is no God. Right? You might say, oh, I don't believe in God. But that doesn't change the fact that you're worshiping something. See, worship is programmed into our DNA. The only question is, what are you worshiping? 
Now, there's a way to figure out what you're worshiping. I, I think I put together a few, I mean, there's probably several more, but a few diagnostics to run on your life to see what it is that your worship is falling on. I think the first, the easiest way to track it down, where's your money going? What, what, do, you, what do you spend your money on? What do you deem as a valuable investment of your limited resources? You know, we have a reason to, believe, to, to look at this because Jesus says, where your treasure is, there you will find your heart. Right, so follow the money. The second diagnostic question. What do you think about when you have nothing else to think about? What is it that you dream of? What do you daydream of? What do you, what do you imagine? What do you, what do you feel your time with another question might be what what causes emotional or effectual reactions in your life what makes you stand up and cheer what what makes you deeply happy what on the other side makes you deeply sad what hurts you what grabs you by the throat the most Or what about this? What is it that makes you who you are? What's the thing that if that were to be removed from your life, you would, you would find yourself in some sort of identity crisis? I don't know who I am without this thing. See, those, those four questions are gonna lead you right to the core of what your heart worships. And I think that these questions are alarming for both Christians and non-Christians alike because non-Christians, especially those who are, are skeptical of any sort of faith and worship in general, what they realize is that they indeed are worshiping something. But I think it's even more startling for Christians because we begin to realize that the Sunday school answer of I worship Jesus isn't necessarily what's practically happening in our life. I had a funny conversation with my kid the other day in the car. We were talking about, you know, who do we worship? And we worship God and, and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And I said, yeah, we only worship God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, God that's three in one. And he goes, well, actually, I also worship my toys, my mommy's van. I worship my food. You know, and he has this, that's the reality for us as Christians, that we think that our hearts are fully set on God, but a lot of times they're not. We're inconsistent. We're half-hearted with our worship. Now, there's a reason why I've been silent about the Oakland Raiders this season, okay? They've had a terrible season. And I've realized how much of my affections, and it seems like sort of a trivial thing, right? A sports team, but how much of my affections get stirred up by the Oakland Raiders? And here they have a, a, a miserable season, and it's just crushing my soul. See, that's how it is when we worship anything other than God. That thing will eventually crush you. 
Whether it's sports teams, your appearance, your sexuality, your money, or power, or intellect, or prestige, or reputation, or your kids, or your work, those things will eventually crush you. The, the quote that I was telling you about David Foster Wallace, he, it's just, it's so good. He says, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you in the ground. Worship power. You will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep fear at bay. Worship intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on and so on. Worship your kids. They do something dumb. Right? You, you spend your life running them around from thing to thing to thing, and eventually it kills you. It wears down your soul. Now, if you want to get to the core of why life feels so discombobulated, it, it, it actually has very little to do with the circumstantial things in life. It has more to do with what you put at the center. See, the reason why things are discombobulated in life is because we're putting something at the center. We're, we're trying to find stability on something that is not meant to be at the center of our life. You're throwing your crown before something that is unworthy. You're handing over control to something that is the equivalent of a three-year-old. Or put it this way, you're reflecting a light that is dingy and nicotine-stained. Now, oftentimes, these things that we put at the center, these idols or false gods, they're really just a disguised way of putting ourselves at the center, right? We, we, we like to worship our kids because in having good kids, that says something about our parental ability, in giving ourselves to our work that says something about you, that you're capable and competent. And worshiping money, you're saying, this, this puts me in control. I feel limitless. I have all the options available to me. When you put people or things or yourself at the center of the universe, it's like using jello as the foundation for a home. You might initially build it and the walls will be square. Everything looks fine, but eventually things are gonna start to wiggle. Things are gonna start to fall apart. Eventually the wind is gonna push in and the ground shifts and the, the whole house is gonna move. It's like you're in a perpetual earthquake. And it's only a matter of time. It's not if these things will fail you. It's when these false gods and these false idols that you put at the center will fail you. See, if we want to be centered, if we want to be secured, it starts with worshiping correctly. It starts with ascribing worth to what's really worthy. It's putting God at the center of our lives just as he is at the center of the universe. That's what centers us. 
There's a story I've told probably before a couple times at least, but it's too good to not tell it. In, in the 1870s, there was a man named Horatio Spafford. And this was a man of, of uh, prestige and wealth. He was uh, from Chicago. And, and all in one year, and kind of, he lost his son to, to pneumonia. His business went up with the Chicago fire. Um, thankfully, God was gracious and allowed him to rebuild and his company bounced back. And uh, after this really trying season of life, he said, hey, we should go away. And he took his wife and his four daughters, those who were still alive, and they decided to sail across the sea and go visit England. And uh, for some reason, he had to stay back uh, tend to some business matters, and so he sent his wife and his four daughters on, and so they, they went, and on the way, as they're sailing across the sea, they're shipwrecked. They, 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 they're in a major crisis. And what happens is his four daughters perish. Only his wife survives. She gets back to England and sends a telegraph over and says, I'm the only survivor. She said, horrendous, horrendous circumstance. And as Horatio was voyaging across the ocean for himself, he started writing uh, a song. And we know it as, uh, it is well. He said, when peace like a river attaineth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roar, whatever my lot, Thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. See, the only way that Horatio could say what he says, the only way that he could bounce back from something like that is if he was centered. It wasn't his business that was the center of his life. It wasn't his kids. It wasn't his wife. It wasn't his comfort. His center, the center of his life was God himself. And in that way, he is unshakable. But here's the thing. Here's the thing about worship. We can't resolve to worship better. We, we, can't, we can't bear down and belt it out. We can't manage worship by sense of duty. Like, you can't look at God and say, yeah, sure, he's worthy of this, and so I guess I better, I better worship. No, Worship can only happen when you are, are captivated by God's beauty, when you catch a glimpse of his glory. It's when you have a worship-inducing vision like John did. Church, my prayer is that we would have visions like that often. See God in his glory and his splendor. But it's so hard for us to wrap our minds around to show us the spiritual, to show us the dynamic, vibrant, spiritual worship that's happening, the, the glory, what Jesus did, what God did, sent his son to put on the flesh. There's a song that we sing often, I cast my mind to Calvary where Jesus bled and died for me. That's where glory is. See, no other God would do that for you. 
Not your work, not your kids, not your money. But Jesus put on flesh. And he took the death that we deserve. And really, the reason why we deserve death is because our our worship is misguided. But Jesus put on flesh to take the death that we deserve. He lived the life that we couldn't live, fully devoted to God, always ascribing to him, worthy, 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 glory and power and dominion are his forever. And by Jesus' actions, he gave us a reward only he himself is worthy of. He gives us life, new life. That we are, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that we are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Tim Keller says, worship of the true God always and inevitably makes you feel as glorious as he is. That, that, that God is certainly the God of all creation and he is the God of new creation who remakes us, reforms us as true worshipers through his son. That he clothes us in the purest white, that we've been purified from our sins and our misguided worship, that he crowns us with his glory, that we ra- are radiant as he is radiant. And it's all to his credit. It's nothing that we've accomplished. It's not because we've bore down and straightened out our heart. It's because his glory has overwhelmingly taken us and brought us into the throne room. See, that is why we worship. That God is the God of creation. He made us, but he has not ceased making. He's remaking us. We're being recreated in Christ so that we can draw near to him so that one day it's us around the throne, not just the 24 elders, but all of God's people at the throne singing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and we're created. Father, we give you thanks and praise, the praise and worship that you're due. Father, we ask for mercy and grace as, as we realize that our, our hearts are often fickle and misguided, that we find lesser things to worship. Father, we ask that you would give us a vision of yourself, of your son that overwhelms us, that brings us into the heavenlies, that makes us aware of the spiritual reality that exists today and will exist forever. Make us into true worshipers, to worship in spirit and in truth from now and forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.